now. Why don't you dump this first? That's the Paul Marty. Formaldehyde, to be precise. To be even more precise, dirty formaldehyde. Every bottle is coated with layers of dust. Pour them into the sink. Ex excuse me? Just empty every bottle to the very last drop. It's just they are toxic chemicals and the regulation states that... Pour them right down the drain, Mr. Kim. If I pour them in the drain, they run into the Han River. That's right. Let's just dump them in the Han River. But you know, this is not just any toxic chemicals, so you The Han River is very broad, Mr. Kim. Let's try to be broad-minded about this. Hmm? Anyway, that's an order. So, start pouring. Hey everybody, welcome back to Uncanny Cinema. We are going to be looking at a foreign film this time around. We're going to be looking at 2006's The Host. Now this is a movie that uh, made a fairly big splash uh, both in South Korea, it was very successful in South Korea, but then internationally uh, it did well uh, in the United States and elsewhere. It had an 11 million budget and it went on to make 90 million dollars. So, uh, you know, I mean, not we're not talking like Avengers level here or anything like that, but for that budget to the uh, profit is uh, pretty solid. And then for a South Korean film, you know, I think that's uh, that's pretty good. South Korean cinema, especially in the 2000s into now, has like blown up somewhat where, you know, a lot of internationally people are paying more attention to it. Some of my favorite movies that are not from the United States are from South Korea. Um, Chanwook Park is uh, a very solid director over there. And then uh, Bong Joon-ho, who is the director of this movie. Uh, Bong Joon-ho also directed the phenomenal film Snowpiercer. He directed Memories of Murder. He did the movie Mother, um, not the uh, Jennifer Lawrence one. This was a, a different one, South Korean one that's like a detective kind of story. He did Okja, which was on Netflix. And then he probably now is most famously known for Parasite. So he is the director of Parasite, which took the world and United States particularly by storm and went on to be become kind of the upset victor uh, of the uh, Academy Award for Best Picture, the first foreign film to ever also get um, win the Best Picture. It won Best Foreign Film, but also won uh, Best Picture outright. So this is the director of Parasite. Um, if you are a fan of South Korean cinema, if you're a fan of horror, there's a good chance you have seen the host, you're at least aware of it. But if you're just sort of like a movie fan and you come across stuff and you're not necessarily beholden to genre or anything, you might have missed the host or not known much of what it's about. I will say, even though I referred to it as horror, like most of or, or many of Bong Joon-ho's films, this one is not that easy to classify. Like when Parasite came out, people were sort of like, oh, it's like a drama thriller comedy with social commentary. 
on uh, horror elements. Um, so this one, you know, you could definitely say science fiction based on things that happen in it. You could definitely say it plays on tropes of horror. There's also elements of comedy and family drama going on in it. And there's some like political commentary as well. So that seems to be a, a regular uh, aspect of his films is he likes to just kind of mash up genres. And what's interesting is he it never feels like, you know, well, I'm going to make this part like this and this part like this. It's not like he's showing off and, and going to like diverge in all these different genres. It just like always kind of feels natural to the world that he builds that it's like, okay, now this scene is like comedic and then this scene is more horror driven. So uh, some other background information for the host is we have, uh, and, and forgive me if I don't uh, pronounce some of these names correctly, but the main, arguably the main character, the, the father character of this is Song Kang Ho. There is a grandfather character. Um, the actor is Byun Hee Bong. Uh, there is a grad student brother to the main father character who is Park Hae Il. And then there is a sister to the father character who is like an archer and going for like a gold medal. So she's like a very talented archer. Uh, that's Bay Duna. And then uh, there's a young daughter for the father who is played by Go Ah Sung. And all of these actors have popped up in other South Korean films and some films outside of South Korea. But probably the two most prominent people that you might recognize from, from things is the father. So Song Kang Ho, he is the father in this, but he also shows up in uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. And he is in Snowpiercer, and he is the father in Parasite. So uh, the lead character of the host goes on to be in Bong Joon-ho's uh, Parasite as Again, arguably the lead character in that. I mean, that was like a family focus, but um, but the father had a lot of uh, focus in that film. And then uh, Bae Du Na, she also showed up in Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, and she has been in Cloud Atlas, and I saw a few other things. I think uh, Sense8 or something like that, uh, which has been popular. I think I saw she was on that. But she's been in a number of things as well. But all these actors have been in other things, but those two are the ones that popped out. Um, and then, yeah, like usual, we'll dig into a lot of different aspects. But as far as background stuff goes, probably not a whole lot else to dig into. So I think I can just uh, introduce our cast here. So we've got a couple uh, returning gents, uh, both big movie fans uh watch a lot of genres and i know uh at least chris enjoys science fiction i think jason you probably uh do as well so um yeah so uh we've got uh, we'll say jason joining us here i think your last one was uh the uh autopsy of jane doe right my only one but okay. yes my last and only yes yeah all right, and then, uh, well, welcome. And then, Chris, uh, you're joining us again. You've been on a lot of our musicals, and I can't recall what we had you on last. Me either. Um, the last, oh, it was Porkin' Across America. Ah, How okay. could I have forgotten? The great Porkin' Across America. Yes, go, watch, go listen to that episode and watch that wonderful web series from The Onion. All right, so uh, so yeah, so I think we can probably dig into this. Uh, basic concept of this is, 
it opens with a couple of doctors, uh, like sci scientists, like military scientists, and one is American. Uh, I believe he's played by Scott Wilson, character actor Scott Wilson, who's been in a lot of stuff. And then there is a um, South Korean assistant, and so the American scientist orders his assistant to pour a bunch of jars of formaldehyde down the drain, which will go into the Han River, which is, you know, like main area through uh, Seoul, right? Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. Yeah. So the city of Seoul. So um, the assistant doesn't want to. He's kind of forced to. He complies. And then eventually we get hideous fish monsters. This movie focuses on a mutant fish that is terrorizing the city. So it's uh, it plays similar to a lot of giant monster movies like, you know, Godzilla, King Kong, but on a much smaller scale because this uh, creature is like it's the size of like a truck or a van. And you could also compare it. It plays similar a lot to like I would say Jaws. The way people approach the creature, the way the kind of main people we're following approach everything, and this sort of like very um, like down to earth, grounded view of it compared to say like a Godzilla or a King Kong where everything's heightened. So um, it has a much more like realistic approach to it. But yeah, so you have like a fish monster that's terrorizing the area and grabbing people up. It's not like super smart or anything. It's not like some alien creature. It's basically just presented like an animal. It's like a tiger. It's just rampaging and eating and uh you know tearing into people all right so that's kind of the basic idea and uh we'll launch into the host so what do we make of the host well first things first things first if you don't mind and i don't know how true this is because i found out like 60 seconds ago that supposedly the like that actually happened I saw, yeah, the, uh, the from, well, not the giant fish monster to be clear. Oh, that, no, that listeners. definitely happened. Now, the uh, uh, pouring of formaldehyde mean? into, I mean, that whole opening scene was something that supposedly actually occurred. Which... Yeah, I, I, I think it's legit because I think it wasn't, I don't think it's just like a rumor or a story. I think they, from what I read, it happened and the United States government essentially refused to give up the guy who did it and the South Korean government were like fighting to try to get it, you know, get like justice for it. And a lot of people in South Korea were like furious that the South Korean government were like, they did it here. Why, why can't you prosecute them? So it went through a bunch of like legal issues over a number of years. But then I think from what I saw, he never faced anything for it. Of America. He's American. Yeah. yeah. But what a great starting point to actually root it in something that happened that you're probably a little salty about, right? Yeah. And then the whole thing goes on to be sort of like political commentary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think the starting point of the movie sets up so much, like, thematically, and also in terms of the tone, because uh, we start with this story that feels over the top, and you have an American telling a South Korean what to do, um, and they kind of throw up a little bit of pause, but end up doing exactly as they're told. The whole scene seems over the top, and you're like, oh, this seems like the cheesiest beginning to a horror film I've ever seen. But then you go and look the movie up later, and you find out that this was a real event that happened. Um, obviously, it's overacted, but, um, but I Brilliantly think Brilliantly by Scott Wilson. Yes. 
Yeah, so I think you have a lot of big themes being set up here. Number one is they don't beat around the bush at any point in this movie, and this is the same way. First scene, we're going to dump some chemicals in the river. Second scene, we're going to find some weird things in the river. Um, and you also have, you know, the the kind of American overlord aspect to it, but also I think the movie explores a lot of the South Korean uh, government and population kind of allowing it to happen also and not fighting back, which I think a lot of the movie goes on to Lampoon because I think as anti-American as it is, it doesn't place all the blame on the Americans as you go through it. Like the government that is created in this film is complicit in a lot of the actions. And I think that's set up right away. And it's, it's just a really interesting kickoff for the whole film. Yeah, I did see that Bong Joon-ho commented on it, and he didn't consider it to be, like, anti-American. That wasn't his goal, but he saw it as, like, a critique of. So he wasn't trying to push it so far as, like, I hate the United States. Um, but that could have had to do with him wanting to sell this to the United States, too. Who knows? But, uh, but yeah, he did, like, want it to be, like, somewhat of a critique of the United States and certain foreign policies. Well, he's not, he's not wrong. I mean, the... The three big instances of Americans getting involved in the film, or they all sort of fuck things up. You know, mm -hmm. they, there's the the pathologist in the beginning with the formaldehyde. There's the soldier who winds up getting killed in the monster attack, and then there's the lazy-eyed scientist towards the end, who shows up and sort of messes a bunch of stuff up. So, I mean, well, and he and he arguably like is just outright evil based sure. on some of sure. the things that yeah. are shown i mean um we well, can I get want... to that later yeah, I, I, I did think um yeah yeah i've got some questions about that the hospital scenes but yeah i, I thought it was interesting because it's been a while since i revisited it but the when the american guy just charges in so once the monster is unleashed we'll, we'll talk about that at length but the american guy charges in he's like talking to his like south korean girlfriend or something like like, people need help. I need to go out there. And it's like some of the only dialogue, except from the very beginning, that's spoken in English. And so it really, like, pops out at you of, like, oh, I'm, I'm here in English here. And he's white. And he's young. And he's, like, charging in. And uh, at least on this viewing, I had this very, like, oh, he's, like, the hero in a regular, like, sci-fi action movie. And I feel that that's Bong Joon-ho putting that out there intentionally of, like, I mean, we haven't been following him. He comes completely out of nowhere. We've been following this family, and the the guy we're really following is like side by side with this guy, but just out of the blue, our young white uh, you savior know, savior pseudo protagonist shows up to to help everything, and he and he does fuck it up because he like the monster was contained. Um, I mean, it was eating people but it was like contained within a thing and it, it might have they might have stopped it right then and there but he ends up like uh getting them out um and then he ultimately ends up uh sustaining injuries and we find out later dies but i did think on this rewatch that yeah that was a little commentary on the normal kind of heroes we see anytime it's like a genre sci-fi thing where there's gonna be a dude who's gonna save the day and it's gonna be that guy yeah, and I think that's big on uh, Bong Joon-ho throughout a lot of his films, especially in this one, just like working in every scene to subvert your expectations. Um, like you said earlier, this was a really successful like sci-fi action type flick, but that's not what it is at its core. At its core, it's like a story about the family. Um, 
and it was at the time it was released it was the like most anticipated and highest grossing film in Korea uh, that mm-hmm. was made in Korea to date yeah um, it's been surpassed since but um, yeah I think that's just setting up the expectations and subverting them and we can talk about it with the first monster attack scene this is probably a good time to go into that because it happened so early you know you compared it to jaws in the way that the characters treated the story that was unfolding but uh it's kind of diametrically opposed to jaws in terms of the pacing well i would say not just the pacing but the approach to the monster is is absolutely different so yeah within about 15 minutes the monster shows up um and i mean the the monster shows up in jaws within the first five minutes and attacks the girl but it's always cloaked in shadows and you know you can look up the stuff on jaws about how spielberg didn't originally want it that way he had to do it because the fucking robot shark didn't work and so he said oh that made me be hitchcockian about it and that ended up making jaws into an uber phenomenon and like it works so much better that way but uh, but that aside, in Jaws, yeah, they hold back so much throughout that whole movie and build all the expectations. And I read that Bong Joon-ho, I don't think this was about Jaws, but he said that he basically doesn't like uh, that idea of we never show the monster. Like, he doesn't like that as a trope. Um, and he also said he wanted to get the monster kind of just out there because once you get it out there, the audience stops being like, oh, when am I gonna see it? What part am I seeing? Where's the monster now? Like, and instead they focus on the characters and on the family, which is what he wanted to focus on. So yeah, within like the first 15 minutes, there's this wonderful rampage scene and it's over by, I think like minute 20. So we're 20 minutes into the movie and you've gotten like complete money shots of your creature from every possible angle and it's done all kinds of damage and stuff. It's basically the climax of so many other movies is what we're watching. And then obviously we see the monster as the movie unfolds. We see it do different things and characters are going after it and it's attacking people and everything. But what happens in the first 15 minutes easily could have been the end of lots of other movies. So yeah, let's talk about the, the opening monster stuff. Can we can we also add that it was in broad daylight, which was great. Yes, yes. Which was super amazing. I think the first shot we see it, it's in slow motion. Isn't it behind, um, was it Gangdu? I, I, I don't remember the pronunciation of his name. The father, mm-hmm. sort of the lackadaisical father figure. It's like running up behind him in slow motion. So you're getting like a great, like slow shot. So not only are they showing it in broad daylight, but they're giving you time to sort of take it in. And it's totally fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's running it's running along the river but it's on sort of like a boardwalk that they have that separates the river from like the mainland and it's running along that and it's just like knocking people away and swatting people away and you just get this like lengthy shot of it coming toward the camera. And so that alone is great, but then they keep on trucking with all kinds of other stuff. But yeah, the broad daylight thing is a huge inversion for nearly any horror film since Jaws, but really since forever. I mean, you want to go back to like, uh, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein and all kinds of things. It's, you know, almost always cloaked in darkness, stormy night, all that kind of shit. But yeah, this is just like a bright spring day or something. 
which I think makes it even more sort of alarming because it's at like, you know, it's at a park by the river. It's so tranquil. All these families are having fun. And uh, arguably, I think one of the greatest non-monster parts of that is when you know it's like out there or some people are starting to see it everybody rushes and has like their cameras out and their phone i don't i don't i don't know if it was a phones i don't remember but that's what i feel like would happen if a monster came out of lake erie everyone would yeah. be standing on the beaches with their phones out recording it yeah and even mid attack you had shots of like the lady with her camcorder like and other people like you know the hero the the fake american hero and his girlfriend arguing things like that like you had a very different view of a monster attack than what we usually see. It's not everybody running in the same direction and the monster tearing everybody apart. It's just like pure chaos. No one knows what to do. No one knows if they should go towards it, away from it. Um, and it's just kind of fun to watch. And it's on such a big scale. You know it's not... It's a big budget movie, but it's not a huge budget movie. So to like choreograph that large of a crowd uh, in a CG monster scene... Um, at that point in the mid two thousands, it's a really impressive feat. In terms and he of does a lot of camera work and stuff too, where like things will move, the camera will move, and so when the monster, we're like shifting perspectives, or we're like we're like panning across something, and the monster's running, and so it just makes it all feel like it's genuinely happening, and and in ways that big budget movies will do, movies that cost two hundred million dollars will do or won't even do as well as this movie is doing um just like like i remember like when it's running down the river at some point it starts kind of running up this slope and the father character is like watching it and starts kind of panicking and we're seeing him in the foreground and the monster in the background and there's like camera movement with it and it just to me feels like oh this this is really happening that's a real monster that's terrorizing and it doesn't feel like a cgi like color form has been stuck on the screen and it's impressive because the monster is very clearly CGI the whole time you're watching it, but the way that it, they're moving the camera and everything, you kind of are just okay with it. I think, like, in terms of the textures on the character, things like that, it's clearly mid-2000 CGI in a way that you can kind of pick it out and you can say, that's CGI, that's not a practical effect, anything like that. Yeah. But... Everything that's happening, everything that it's doing and its movement and the weight of it, like they get everything right aside from their obvious technological limitations. So you can just look past, you know, that shin's skin's too shiny or the lighting's not right or, you know, whatever it is that's kind of throwing you. Well, so here's the thing. I actually think the CGI holds up really well. Um, I think when it gets close ups on the mouth is when it looks a bit more like a video game. It's like like the the graphics aren't quite there to make this look like an actual like animal's interior of a mouth, like even for a monster creature. But I think like especially in that opening scene and a lot of times when it's running, like Chris, you mentioned like looking shiny, a lot of CGI, bad CGI or mid-level CGI will have this kind of like sheen to it and kind of like it pops out like, oh, this clearly is not like a real physical object that's getting light hit it, hit on it and everything. But I think because this is like a fish monster and because its skin by nature should be slippery and shiny anyway, I think that actually helps it and hides a bit of it um, compared to if this were like a werewolf creature and you would be like, ah, yeah, that doesn't that's not looking right. But for me, I think it all looks pretty solid, except for some of those scenes when it's like looking down into the pit 
and you see it's like mouth and stuff up close and it's like ah they do that better today there was a there was a couple instances i because we were talking about this earlier where um the monster goes into the water and it's like you can see its tail or some of its fins or whatever that some of that looked real odd but the creature design was just so fantastic that it that's the other thing i think like it makes it easily for you know forgivable when the cgi like doesn't hit it's like thing is like they spent some time making this thing look bonkers well and the important thing too is like for any of this kind of stuff sci-fi horror whatever high concept thing it is at the end of the day you're always going to like be able to see some strings i mean we mentioned jaws and jaws is held up as an utter classic even by people who don't care about horror but like it gets to the end of jaws and the shark starts eating robert shaw and you're like yeah it's a big robot that's a big robot shark. Like, like nobody's fooled into thinking that that's a real shark. But the movie's functioning so well, and you're you like Shaw, you like um, Quint, and you're just in the moment. And so you know, it's just like heart rendering. Even though you know, oh yeah, that's a, that's a that's an effect that we're watching. So um, I think that's you know that's one of the big things of making a successful movie like this is just making you invested in this kind of stuff. And so. When you have those moments where things might get a little dodgy, the audience is still like, ah, but this is fucking great. And I think that the host does that incredibly well, not just on the like monster stuff, but all the family stuff as well. Yeah, and the family stuff leading up to the monster attack, I think is really interesting too, because they set up a lot in a very short time. And they even flip uh, the father character on his head as soon as the monster attacks, because when we start out the film, he is kind of like, stealing food from the shack uh he is like falling asleep when he's not supposed to um we see you know glimmers that he's a good person he's saving up money to buy his daughter a better phone even though he doesn't have enough money to save up Uh, but then as soon as the monster attacks you know this person who has been portrayed as like the fuck up is right there next to the american hero trying to save the day trying to save his daughter i think that's a really interesting flip really early on well, I, to piggyback on that, like, he's a little, I mean, he's not, I mean, he's kind of dumb, you know, maybe a bit lazy, but he loves his daughter. I mean, that's, like, clear from the get-go that he's, like, he's, he, you know, she's the most amazing thing. And I, that's what I love when he's, like, running around trying to save her with the American guy. It's He's doing sort of some of the right things, not all of them. I mean, he grabs the wrong girl's hand at a point, but, uh, um, you know, he definitely meant well and was doing some things yeah um so yeah i don't know do we want to like go into like the family dynamic and since they're the core of all this yeah i think because right as we get through the monsters on the beach scene we start being introduced to the rest of the family before the monsters were introduced to the father the daughter the grandfather um and we know that uh the sister is an archer um but then i think the funeral scene is where you really set up the core dynamic of who the other members of the family are and how they interact with each other. Yeah, the other the the other brother being the important one, don't you think? The alcoholic brother showing up and then, you know, ends up starting a fight, drop kicks the father, or his brother, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his, uh, his brother-in-law. Um, that's right, correct? I'm getting no, the family correct? relationship no, correct? I think, no, that's his brother. Yeah, okay. I, thought, I thought. Yeah. Got it. But yeah, the uh, it's 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 an interesting scene because again, 
it's one where we explore the family dynamic, but then we veer off into comedy at the end where they're all kind of writhing around on the floor crying like over the top. Like in that one scene, you pack in so many different, you pack in the family dynamic, you pack in the Americans or the scientists in the hazmat suits kind of storming into the funeral and, and, and barking orders and no one knows. Paparazzi. You have the paparazzi. You have no one knowing if they can trust the government. Like, are they here to help us? Are they here to take us away? Then you have the full family argument, the writhing on the floor. Like, it goes through so many kind of moods and genres in that one scene. Um, that again, almost every scene in this movie, we have so many threads going on that are, are really fun. Like, almost none of that scene is about the monster. It's all about the family um, and the government. Um, but we're still, like, 100% into that story, even though we're not talking about the monster, per se. Well, for some context, uh, the scene that Chris is talking about here, the uh, the family has gathered around at kind of like a, you know, if it were happening in the United States, it'd be like a gymnasium following a tornado kind of thing. I, I'm not sure exactly where they're supposed to be, but it's, it's that kind of thing. And then there are pictures up of people who were killed during the monster attack. And one of the pictures is of the young girl. She's like 10 or 11 of the main character you know the father so she was grabbed by the fish monster like with it has like a prehensile tail and it's like able to whip people around or grab them and stuff it also eats people so it grabs her and like runs off and we've seen it eat a bunch of people so they initially assume that she's dead um that it would have devoured her shortly thereafter Later, we find out that that is not the case and propels much of the plot. But that's uh, that's where things kind of uh, start off in thinking that the young girl is dead. Well, did you guys actually think she was dead? Because I, when I initially saw it, I thought, I was like, whoa, that was bold. I can't remember because I, I saw this, you know, maybe like a year or so after it came out, like 2007. So I cannot remember what I thought at the time. But For me, I think I remember... Because she was carried away in his tail and not, like, eaten on screen, I felt like there was a chance that, you know, there was there was going to be... Because everybody else is, like, clawed or eaten, and she is just picked up, and he runs away with her. She gets slammed into the ocean pretty hard. The George R.R. So. R. Martin rule. If they're not killed on screen, they're not dead. That's the rule. Yeah, uh, you know, more of a guideline. Fair <laughs> And I think that also in the scene we see the first instance of, I think the most tragic moments in this film are when, are all in Song Kang-ho's like eyes. Like the brother, the drunk brother comes in drinking and he says, I can't believe you can't take care of your own daughter. You didn't have her hand. And like, he's not, the father's not like fighting back. He just has the most devastated look of all time in his eyes. Like, and that happens a few times throughout the film where his acting elevates these dramatic moments so much further because you can tell he he's he's taking it on himself and not like he's not there to defend himself. He's just accepting, yes, I am a fuck up. This is who I've been all my life and it's ruining everything. And I feel like those those moments happen throughout and it's that actor that really like, you know, pulls the most emotion out of me like a few times in the film. Oh, yeah, he's fantastic and was equally fantastic in Parasite. Completely different, but yeah. And 
I really liked him a lot because people always underestimated him. So later on, when the American scientist comes in, he's like, why didn't, you know, why haven't you been saying anything? Why didn't you do all the things that any rational person would do? And he's like, I try, I, no one listens to me. Like, I tried try to tell people. And I thought that was, like, super tragic as well. People just, you know, they didn't take him seriously. Mm-hmm. And he's maybe, even though he, he is kind of dolty, he's also sort of capable because he's propelled by the, his love for his daughter. I thought that was, like, really great. Yeah. Because who else is going to go in the sewer when there's a, you know, 40-foot fish monster lurking around? I'm not. Unless, not Jason. You know, no, no. Yeah, and that kind of takes us into the next scene. They're in the hospital. Um, they're getting news that there is now a viral threat uh, based on contact with the monster, and they're screening people for that. Um, Linton, I don't know if you want to give context to that scene, but I think that that scene's more of you learn a lot, but it's kind of like the end of that scene launches this into from like horror film into family buddy con like misfit family go get them kind of comedy territory yeah basically the father had blood sprayed on him and when the uh korean government starts asking uh who came in contact with the monster and and people are like raising their hands uh, they keep asking questions, and eventually he just offers up, like, I got blood on my face. And then they're like, get him immediately. Um, and it's basically like that moment in uh, Monsters, Inc., where they, like, tackle the guy, like, who uh, had come in contact with the uh, sock. Yeah, with a sock and stuff. So it's like that, but, you know, played uh, much more serious. And, yeah, so he's now essentially quarantined, and we don't know exactly, like, what the government is planning on doing with him. But during that uh, period that he and the family are quarantined, he gets a call from his daughter on like her not very functional cell phone. And so he hears her voice and she says she's in a sewer. And so he now knows she's alive, but he doesn't know where she is other than having this like vague idea of where to start looking. So the family basically has to break out of the hospital and uh yeah from there it's just kind of like the rest of the movie is the family in different ways working toward the daughter and various things come up that uh help them on their journey and then other things come up that impede them on their journey so um yeah like a a family road trip uh within the city there's that kind of vibe to it well and it also sets up the like government cover-up story which is also another element of it that I thought was like really, really great. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we learn later on there isn't a virus, right? And so were they using that as like a cover-up? And, and yeah, and the movie makes us believe that there is a virus because he, like, he, he has like his scratchy back and he pulls up his shirt and he has some welts there. So kind of the movie wants us at that time to believe that the virus is real uh, and that he has it. So it's especially in a, I can't call it a post-COVID world, uh, in a COVID-ridden world <laughs> that we live in now, it's really, it, it, it brings kind of a new meaning to this scene of this family being like, we're infected, but we got to go get this done. Let's break out of the hospital. 
Which, <laughs> by the way, there, on the road. there are several scenes where people are wearing masks, and those definitely hit different than they hit in 2006, because uh, I haven't watched this movie in years, and uh, there's like scenes of people on buses and they're wearing masks. I know people in Asian countries have been wearing masks during smaller uh health health scares you know um and i know like even just during like cold and flu season they'll, they'll wear it so it's not completely unheard of um there but yeah so you're seeing people on like public buses and at one point a guy is like hacking up a lung essentially and s removes his uh -huh. mask removes his mask he's with a bunch of other people wearing masks waiting for a bus removes his mask like spits into the gutter with like full of water and then a big truck comes by and splashes all of that water onto people and they freak the fuck out because they think there's a deadly virus out there and it's like yeah that's this is covid right here that's what we're watching yeah so it was interesting the the breakout of the hospital scene felt so different uh now that we have more <laughs> pandemic experience under our belts you're like they're so inept like they should have had guards every and they then they like partially escape because they had dressed up differently or they put on some sort of like other hospital garb you know and the guy's got blonde hair like he sticks out like a sore thumb nobody's paying attention oh i i thought chris was indicating the opposite that like you know in america they just let him walk out the fucking door like you don't have to break out here just go go on well, live your I mean, life and this is spoiler alert the first of two hospital breakouts that happen in this film <laughs> so they didn't learn their lesson and i think uh, again that's part of like underestimating him and the family it plays back into that like they don't expect the this guy who they think is crazy uh they legitimately think he's crazy because he's saying his dead daughter is calling him in the night um and they're just like oh he's harmless leave him in that plastic cell that we've put him in but i also think it shows the ineptitude I think that's something we see quite a bit through the movie is just how inept the authority figures are. Yes. I mean, clearly. And uh, and plus, otherwise, we wouldn't have a movie. But So it's super important. Yeah, on, on the virus stuff, I read that, I guess, in an earlier version of the script, or maybe it was like a cut scene, it was shown that the authorities did genuinely believe the virus was real. And it was through like misinformation initially, but then once uh, everything went underway, they kind of had to stick to that story. That 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 was, uh, but but the way it's presented in the film, it's it's not totally clear of like how many people think it's real within both the American and South Korean governments, or how many people are just like saying it because they're trying to contain this thing or trying to control the population or whatever. I, I do have one bit that's uh, somewhat confusing for me, especially you watching. So it takes a little bit of context. So yeah, they, they recapture the father character. And in this scene, I think Jason mentioned there's like an American scientist who essentially admits there is no virus, that there's never been, they've never found one and that the American who like lost his arm and they show images on the TV of like boils and stuff. E either that was doctored or something else is up with it, but he ends up dying and they said it's like he died like of shock or something uh, from his injuries. 
So there was no virus. We're told this directly before they're going to operate on the father and they're going to like drill into his brain. Um, if you read the Wikipedia synopsis, the argument they put out is that this is being done to essentially lobotomize him because he knows too much, which is entirely possible. But then a lot of the other doctor people seem to think and react like the virus is legit, especially once he's breaking out. So there, that's a little like kind of gray, but the part I'm wondering about earlier in the film, his father, the grandfather character, addresses how his son is like constantly falling asleep and that he's kind of dim-witted. And he makes the case, oh, the reason this happened was I was hardly around when he was a kid. He was having to like steal food to eat. Um, he didn't get enough protein. So he chalks it up to like malnutrition and he thinks something went wrong in his head. Um, it's just like a thing thrown out that he's saying to like basically kind of like cover for his son to the brother and sister. But then later the guy is captured. They go to either lobotomize him or drill into his head to study the virus, whichever take you want to have on that. He survives. He's not lobotomized. So did the lobotomy not take or are we supposed to roll with like, oh, there was something wrong with him and then they did this and that kind of fixed him because in the once that happens, he breaks out and he also seems to become much more capable. Like he start like he, when he like fights the monster at the end, not that he wasn't capable completely before, but he seems like Popeye with his spinach after he gets a lobotomy. So it made me wonder, are we supposed to think that what they did actually improved him? Or are we just supposed to think they drilled, but it did not affect him? So I didn't notice that part at first where you're saying he was more effective post brain drill. I guess I would have to go back and watch it because he was pretty effective in the first monster fight too. Like he did some damage to the monster, mm. but going back to the first part, um, for my reading of it wasn't that they were trying to lobotomize him to because he knew too much. My theory was that that was like a critique of both the things I talked about from the first scene, both the Americans' like unwavering arrogance and the South Korean governments and scientists like just ready to follow along with whatever they said. Because the doctor said, you know, we haven't found the virus anywhere, so it absolutely has to be in the brain. So they're, I think they were drilling just to, like, the, the Americans are willing to do anything to not admit their wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing we were talking about in real life of, like, kind of not turning in the person who was responsible for dumping. Kind of, the Americans are going to cover their tracks no matter what the, the outcome is. And then again, the complicity of the South Koreans and following the orders of the Americans. I thought that was one of the bigger scenes aside from maybe like the agent yellow at the end where it was just kind of in yeah. your face of the Americans will do anything to keep from admitting they're wrong, including injure people one-on-one -on -one in groups, destroy the environment. Like, yeah, it's just the Americans arrogance and inability to admit wrongdoing is how I read that scene. So I think it's, it's that. And also, that he was somewhat dim-witted because that was like a huge I mean that's like an important character quality of that character so 
the fact they they drilled in, I just assumed it just didn't affect him because he was sort of already off. You know what I mean? Like he, it's like he was immune, if you will. Uh-huh. But um, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know what to make of it because when they when he first when we first see a shot of him bandage on his head, the nurse kind of like pokes at him almost like you're poking a dead body with a stick. And it feels like you're supposed to believe for a second or two that he is like fully lobotomized. Vegetative. And then you find out that he's essentially faking it so he can get the drop on them. Springs into action. Yeah. So, yeah. So I just, uh, yeah, I wasn't entirely sure because I would think like in reality, wouldn't that kill or fuck you up? I don't don't know how much. Maybe they just took a tiny sample looking for a virus. I don't know. I don't know the brain science of it. I'm going to admit it, guys. I don't know. Well, Chris, that was why you were put on this episode, was for your brain expertise. I'm into musicals and brain surgery. (laughs) Chris pursued uh, two wildly different tracks in college, one that would net him hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and the other, which was musical theater. And I followed my passion, and I'm broke to this day. (laughs) All right, so uh, what's next? What do we want to hit on? Yeah, we can talk about, I I guess we're launching into, you know, our Little Miss Sunshine, but with a family that hates each other even more and a monster in the background phase of the film. Um, I do think it's interesting, uh, and we're kind of jumping from middle to end again. Uh, I think it's interesting that a lot of the characters in the very end, like, it was, it was fun when the drunk used, like, Molotov cocktails at the end, that kind of thing, where they were, like, using the things that were their, the issues, and and the sister using her bow and arrow, even though at the beginning of the movie, she you know, she's feeling shame for not getting the gold medal, all that fun stuff. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't think it was just that the brother was drunk. It was also he was presented as, like, a political protester. So I think he knew how to make Molotov cocktails because of that, because he had like been protesting the government while in college and things. They make mention of it a few times. So uh, I think the idea was that he was like a, you know, low level terrorist or a freedom fighter, depending on your point of view. Also, where, where, where were the Molotovs coming from? Like at the end when he's like launching them, he's always got two in his hand. I mean, I hate to be that guy but it was like hysterical you never saw where he was i mean you saw in a scene prior that he was like he was getting the bottles from the homeless guy he was carrying a backpack so we don't see it we don't see him grab it i think that's just good editing okay it was good editing by the way um i do like the his friend who works with the police force who is also a former protester with him that's i think that was one of my favorite comedy moments in the film because for me a lot of the comedy didn't hit i would be like I understand that this is comedy, but I didn't, like, get a chuckle out of it. But uh, at one point, he goes to the police to try to um, get some information on where this phone call came from. Or no, it was a telecom company. His friend works at a telecom company. I'm sorry. Um, And he goes to talk to him to get information on, you know, can we trace this phone call? Where did it come from? Uh, The friend ends up being helpful but then like using it as an opportunity to turn him in and this was another friend who was in his youth like uh a protester turned businessman and i kind of read in the history of south korea as you look at it 
when this film was made, like the protests had died down and like 10 years earlier, it was like a big thing. Uh, kind of like the hippie peace protesters becoming, uh, you know, what they are today in, in our world. Um, same thing in this world where there were I all these you mean like boomers, boomers. Yes. Uh, hippies becoming boomers. Something similar happened in South Korea where you had all of these people who were big protesters in college, but then they got these jobs and kind of sold out to the man. But it was a really fun moment because he's helping him, but then he turns him in, um, with like. 15 guys to capture him, which is overkill, but cool. Um, Clearly not. Yeah. And then... Doesn't he, work. <laughs> he escapes anyway, and then you get that, like, kind of, like, power fist from the old protester yeah, as he's escaping. Yeah, that was the best part. As he's running by, you just he puts his fist up and respect. Like, um, oh, so man, good. I've been with you this whole time. Like, I felt like that was, again, like... Bong is, like, really good at those moments of, like people aren't one thing or the other. Like, I think it's the same thing with, like, the family. Uh, you, you, They're clearly a lower-class family, but they have kind of a lot going on for them. And then you bring in an even lower-class family, and you're like, see, this these people who we were looking on as, like, the poor family is, like, a rich family to this uh, Dickensian child that comes in later in the film. Oh, I thought you were talking about Parasite for a second. No, I was talking about this film, because we have yeah. the two children that break into their food stand to, to eat. Sorry I'm jumping around a lot, but I like that the characters, like, this character can be both things. Like, yeah, he can be the protester and the businessman trying to get the money to pay off his debts. Uh, the family can be, you know, in poverty, but also the sister can be competing for a gold medal. Things like that. I, I like, in all of his movies, like in Snowpiercer, when you're in the back car of the train, even though they're all the poor people, there's like a family structure there. There's like a civilized society that they've created. Like, it's not, he never portrays poor people, and especially in Parasite, he doesn't portray poor people as, like, poor is not the character. It's like yeah. something that, is thrust upon the character, but the characters are doing great, even though they're poor and they want to fight and try to better themselves, but that's not what defines them as a family. And I love that that he can do that with a couple different characters throughout the movie. But he a did small, it too. With, oh, oh, I was going to throw out just a small moment that I love in the, uh, when the, when the brother escapes from the people who are going to try to kidnap him and like hold him ransom. Um, he MacGyvers his way out of it in a very cool way. Uh, just in like a, I don't know, the, they, they kind of cover their tracks in the dialogue where like his friend says something about like he's... Uh, he's an escape uh, artist. He, he's an escape artist, yeah. So they, they throw out a line of dialogue like, here's our explanation. But, uh, but then he just does this cool thing where he sees these guys closing in and he takes a paper clip that's sitting on this desk that he's been standing by looking at a computer and he takes a power strip and he puts the paper clip on the uh, like the plug outlet, uh, the plug, the prongs and plugs it into the power strip and just kills all the lights, just like fries the fucking grid. And then everybody's in darkness and he's able to get out of there. And it's like, that's a cool moment. I don't know if it would work, but it's real cool. And it turned it into a bit of Keystone Capers, I felt like, because everybody's it's like pitch black and you can see the outlines and they're all like jumping and converging on where he's supposed to be but now he's over here crawling you know mm -hmm. and it's just i don't know hilarity ensues 
Uh, Jason, you were going to go somewhere a moment ago. Just to the point about, you know, people not being one thing, something that stuck out to me, too, was with the two boys that were raiding the family's snack shack, right? Because they were there to only take food to survive. They wouldn't take the money. That was, like, a, a big point of the scene. Where, like, the young, the little kid is like, yeah. well, why wouldn't we just take this? And the other boy's like, because we're not thieves. Yeah, and the term that they used that there, on my subtitles at least, there wasn't an English translation for. They had a term for someone. It seemed like the idea was, like, going into someone's garden, taking the food you need. And right. they used that term. And that term does come back later when the grandfather is talking about what happened to the father. He yeah. said he used to have to do this to survive, and he didn't get enough food. So it's even a thing where... You know, they're directly connected by this kind of poetic word for stealing food to survive. Yeah, um, so I, I, I read about it. Um, it's it's even more complicated than that. It's not just a word for stealing. And the reason it doesn't come through in a translation is because, like Bong Joon-ho said, there's basically no translation for this in English. Um, but, uh, yeah, that term, I don't, I don't have it written down, but the term that they use that shows up in the subtitles it uh it doesn't just refer to like you know stealing bread to survive or anything like that it's it's kind of like a game that's played like a societal game or like i i guess you could liken it to like kids like toilet papering houses and like that kind of thing it's just like something that's like accepted in society and you know they'll like steal melons and stuff and if you catch them you wouldn't take them to the cops and be like, they're stealing from me. You would just be like, give it back or we gotcha or whatever. That it's just sort of this like societal thing, but not seen as a crime. So the stealing, kids like- Like stealing pies from windowsills in America. Yes, yes, that would be a good- uh, <laughs> That old chestnut. A, a good version, yes. Uh, depression era thieving from cartoons. That's, uh, that's where we're at. Um, but yeah, I, another- thing of what you're talking about there Chris of like that the characters being poor is never their like dominant trait or anything I did see that like Bong Joon-ho like so he wanted to focus on regular people as heroes that that was a big thing I mean we already talked about like pushing away from like oh the the you know square-jawed American hero idea he didn't want them to be like government officials saving the day or doctors saving the day he just wanted this family like this basically normal family and obviously they have like certain traits and abilities that have that help them by the end but uh yeah he wanted to be locked in on just normal people which um you know makes us stand out a bit from your regular kind of like sci-fi action things that was another thing i didn't mention action as a genre but i would say there's plenty of action in this movie so you could definitely classify it as that as well oh yeah and talking about them as normal people they also like they're just going from sewer to sewer they don't have a great plan like it's not like their plan is well thought out it's not an ocean's 11 movie it's like they're just like the sheer will of finding their niece their daughter their granddaughter is what like keeps pushing them even though they're caught a few times, almost, I think every character by the end has been completely knocked out of action at some point. Um, yeah. The sister gets knocked down by the monster. The brother falls and gets pretty hurt after he makes his escape. 
the the father gets his head straight up drilled into. Like none of them are good at what they're doing, but like they're all so like iron willed in their want to save this girl that they just keep going. And I think that's that's a fun aspect to the film. The the brother with the Molotovs at the end was probably the funniest scene for me, where he's like like he's in rhythm it's almost like a dance he's lighting one off another he's throwing them we don't know where they're coming from but you guys are both cool with that and and he's got one left and you're like here it is he's gonna nail it and he like pulls his hand back to launch it and it just falls backwards on the ground and breaks and you're like oh my god ah which then leads to the cool scene of the sister stepping in but the the dropping of the final Molotov was choice well i also love so there's just like a random hobo that he comes across and like <laughs> just decides to go along yeah. on a monster hunt with him like it's a character that has not been in the movie whatsoever and uh and he initially like is gonna try to like steal slash buy stuff from the guy like for bottles and the guy's like no you're not you're not taking these and he ends up going with him but yeah uh we're you know We've been doing spoilers. We always do spoilers for the show, but you know, I think from here on, we're definitely launching into some key aspects that we would like dance around, uh, you know, bounce around a bit. Um, but yeah, a part that I love is the uh, the hobo is like above the monster on some catwalk and just pours straight gasoline on it. But then it's we see an earlier scene where the monster is like standing in the rain because it's raining a lot in this movie. And so the monster is just like drinking rainwater. Just it has this huge mouth, like predator-esque mouth that opens up, and uh, it's just drinking rainwater from the sky. And so then when gas starts spilling over it, it's like, oh, more rain! And it opens up its mouth to just start consuming straight gasoline, and that leads to its uh, ultimate fate. So I like that little like uh, setup and payoff there. I'm trying to think. So. The next thing we haven't really talked about too much is, you know, they escape from the hospital and now there's a journey to the the first attempts to find the girl before recapture and retaking to hospital number two. Um, there's a fun scene where they're on the way in the car. This is another one of my favorites of just the characters playing off of each other where they're like, they, they secure a truck and the dad spends all of the money that he has and the drunk brother is like, again... Just being a real asshole and being yeah, how like, did, how did they get that set up? Are we told? Because they basically like get shit from the mafia or something, right? Yeah, yeah, just like a criminal underbelly. And are, um, are we told how that gets set up? I didn't know if I missed a line when they're in the no, hospital. No, we don't. Or... We don't see the setup. We just see that you know he's basically the father is putting all of the money he had, or the grandfather is putting literally all of his assets and all of his son's coin bucket for the phone into getting these everything that they need it doesn't say how, why he knows them or anything like that it's not set up it's just here we are at the arms dealer kind of deal which is yeah. um yeah it was a little surprising but maybe it's something that uh oh it's fine i just didn't know yeah. if i had missed something earlier on no it just kind of happens um but yeah he 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 sells everything he gives away everything that he has to get this cleaning truck to get these hazmat suits and as soon as they all get in the car, the brother is just, like, railing on him for what he got. And it's like, you just watched him. Like, his heartbreak as he gave away his whole life for this stuff. And the brother's just like, what are you doing? This isn't good enough. 
Uh, and then just the, the grandfather just being like, the, the brother's like, these suits aren't even the right color. And the grandfather just dismisses them and it's like, oh, we'll just tell them we're from another unit. I feel like there was a lot of that in Parasite 2 where it was just like, oh, we'll just lie to them and it'll be fine. Um, which is probably fairly true in real life. Well, and it was. You know, when they get stopped later, when they get stopped afterwards and they follow through with that, it ends up being totally fine. Oh, but, uh, that, but that's where they spent the extra money. That's what it was. It was a bribe. Well, they bribed to get the guy. The, line. the guy knows who they are, though. The oh, was it, did I miss the bribe? Yeah, because the, the cops, cop, like, immediately, he's like, Mr. Bacteria, which I think the idea is like, oh, that that's what they've been calling him on the news or something. But he, he calls him by name and makes him, like, remove his mask. So, like, he knows that they're escaping although he's I, like, I, I guess the reason that that threw me a little bit was because you're right you're totally right about the bribe he gives them the ramen noodle container full of the change yeah but not even quarters what they were dimes or nickels and uh he doesn't so he's looking at it and that gag pays off but he doesn't do anything or say anything so i was a little confused yeah he about just kind of like wait he just kind of waves them by once they give him the money yeah. so i think that's another kind of ineptitude of the government kind of situation they, that they gave him the, they gave him the jar essentially and they like drive off immediately before he's even opened it so like so he hasn't even seen what's in it or how much and then they're already driving away when he sees like it's full of you know dimes and quarters and stuff and so it's probably like 50 bucks and he's like okay sure whatever <laughs> well we'll do it live um, <laughs> but uh yeah, um, I'd say one, we we're talking a little bit earlier about inversion and Bong Joon-ho, like inverting expectations and playing with genre aspects and, you know, kind of going against like kind of how he presented the monster differently. It's in broad daylight. He gives these like, you know, glorious shots right up front. He's just, uh, he's focusing on real people. So bucking a lot of traditions but uh there's one key one i would say that's pretty big and again we're well into spoilers here uh the end you know near the end there with the girl i hadn't seen this movie in a good long while so i totally forgot she died i did too I, and i'm embarrassed to say it because i really liked the movie the first time i saw it and i feel like that's a super important element to the very end of the movie but, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so essentially what occurs is the girl has been in this like sewer area that the monster uh, has held her in and the monster keeps bringing back bodies and most of them are dead and the monster will be like consuming them later. At one point there's a marvelous moment of bone vomit where the monster just spews out full bones into this sewer area cuz she's expecting like another body. Because if there's another body, there might be a cell phone, and that can help her get out. She found one cell phone, but it was dead. And so she's trying, she's waiting for that when it happens, because she's hiding in this, like, side pipe. And then we just get skulls and rib cages of the monster just ejecting everything, and it's a wonderful bit of gore. But, yeah, she's in there with, um, you know, this little uh, Oliver Twist boy we've seen throughout the movie, um, there's a couple of, I think, like homeless children, and she's with one of them because one of them was killed. But uh, yeah, she eventually protects that boy from the creature, 
and the father pulls them out of its mouth because it hasn't totally like devoured them yet and it's one of those kind of things of like oh she's got to be just like knocked out and they gotta you know they gotta like resuscitate her and she'll be okay um but the little boy is alive but she is dead and the movie holds to that so this girl that's driven the whole plot and has driven all of these characters to try to rescue her she's just dead and the, the movie does it so uh i mean that's pretty bold especially since it they genuinely make you care about this little girl and she does save that boy so um i mean there's narrative reasons for it but it's also just a pretty bold thing most horror movies don't kill kids well, and it, I, I, and please disagree with me if you if you do, but I, I felt like at the end of it, that's what sort of motivates the father to be better. You know, you see him at the end. I'm presuming it's his stand now. He's making yeah. dinner for the two of them. He even looks more. Sort he's, of a, he's adopted together. the the boy, the little boy. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it was it was worth it in the end. Well, yeah, he ha- Well, he has a he has a gun that he keeps. He's watching out the river, like he's afraid something's gonna come back, and he no longer is dyeing his hair blonde, which yeah, like made, made him look like immature, like he was like twenty when he was definitely older than that. So now he just looks like an adult essentially, and like his hair's styled, so he looks like an adult man with a child now. I also thought that was a really sweet arc for that child because when when the daughter is comforting him in the sewer, she's talking about where she lives. And he's like, oh, you live in a store? You must have all the food. Do you have this? Yes. Do you have this? Yes. And he's just like, like idolizing her life, which we know is like a lower class life. But for him, this is like, that's heaven, heaven. where you live. Uh, so to see him be adopted into that environment is like a really a really sweet closing moment that you kind of get the arc of throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, while we're talking about deaths, like the grandfather, it took the wind out of me. I, Ooh, I forgot yeah. how it happens. It's devastating. When he does the hand motion to the family, like the monster's coming up behind him, like he knows he's gone for because there's no more bullets, right? Like he was going to shoot at it and yeah. he's out and he turns around to the family just being like, okay, go. And it just, it, it hits him and knocks him down and then it picks him up and like th- throws him, right? Yeah. yeah. Against the cement. Ugh. Yeah, just because it's like Terrible. it's like a classic action movie moment. Like I've got one bullet left. Here you go. And it was, uh, it's you know it's the son who says I've got one bullet left in this gun. Here you go. And the grandfather goes to be the hero, pulls the trigger, cut to the son like counting on his fingers, yeah. realizing he <laughs> counted wrong. And I was like, oh, uh, wolf. Like me and my wife were watching it at the same time, and we both like there was like an audible visceral visceral reaction to like him counting on his fingers and being like oh, I didn't, I counted wrong. Now my dad's dead. Yeah, what, uh, what did your wife make of it? Because I know she, uh, she's not the biggest fan of horror. I know this isn't straight horror, but. Yeah, I kind of had to just talk her, because she saw Parasite and she's seen Snowpiercer. So I was like, it's not horror. It's like more of a monster movie, action movie. Like, uh, so she, she watched along with me, um. I think it's one of those ones where if you kind of go into it not really knowing what you're going into, 
um, yeah, she did. She was kind of just taking it in as it came to her. For me, it was like nice because it was the second time I had watched it. Um, and I knew that the monster was going to come out swinging, things like that. But I think the first time I watched this movie, it kind of took me so by surprise uh, that I wasn't really like digging into the deeper layers. I was just like, oh, this is a different monster movie. Um, and I think that's kind of how she was on it that time through. Yeah. Not like looking into the family drama and the social political. She she certainly like didn't hate having watched it, and she didn't have her normal horror nightmares, so that was good. But she 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 yeah. didn't walk away thinking say like raving about the film or anything. Well, she should have because it's good. Uh, yeah. So uh, what other stray things we want to touch on? So uh, just. Uh... The director in general, I feel like, does, you know, like this in Parasite, does some things really well. Family, family uh, characters, the social, political drama, like you said, and also eating. Like, mm-hmm. I noticed that in Parasite and this, there's, like, really fabulous scenes of them just sitting sitting around eating. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Which was something I hadn't really thought of before. Well, have you seen his uh, his other work, any of the rest? I've seen Snowpiercer, and I've seen, uh, well, Parasite, so I've seen just those other two. Oh, sorry, I just, I just want to jump in real quick, because having watched this movie when it came out almost a decade ago, for some reason, one of the only scenes that stuck with me was, like, them eating the ramen out of that bucket. Like, it just stuck in my head, and I don't know, I don't know why. <laughs> it's great. It's, it's, I rewound it. It's a well-shot, great scene. Well, Snowpiercer has a lot of like food-based scenes, particularly mm-hmm. the uh, the like cockroach jello bars, G- gelatinous uh, masses, and, and other things that people eat. Um, Okja, Babies. Okja is all about like the food industry that they're like making the super pig to sell all around the world. And then uh, Mother, I remember there being a lot of scenes of characters like sitting around eating, like in between like moments of action or that lead to things and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I hadn't thought about it before, but uh, I think you're right. Yeah, that's that's definitely something he seems to focus on. Maybe it's just part of his like bringing things down to earth that a lot of his movies tend to do. So maybe it's just like. Eating is one thing that universally we can all be like, oh, okay, I get that. Um, and I think, especially with Snowpiercer and Parasite, he both uses like what they're eating to denote class. Because in Snowpiercer, you start out and you're eating your like bug slime, and then you get to the children's car and they're like parading these hard boiled eggs around, and like everybody gets like a perfectly white egg from this, like. But it's very utilitarian, but, like, a very clean-looking food. Then you move further in the car, and it's just, like, drugs and alcohol instead. Uh, Same thing in Parasite. You you see their family meals a lot, but then you also see the way that the rich family treats food um, and how the even poorer guy who's just underground getting food straps... Ravenously eating anything he's given. Yeah, so I feel like in both of those films... It's not only like highlighted, but it's it's part of the way to tell the story of who each of the characters are. Well, and incidentally, uh, a little off the subject, both families in Parasite, the rich family and the family and the and uh, the host, they're the Parks, right? They're the Parks in both. Oh. Yeah, it's the same family name. Okay. Right, not the same family. Yeah. yeah. That we same know. Fam- of. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a shared universe. Yes, uh, Parasite exists in a reality post the host. This is uh, the parks were able to utilize their experiences and sell some books and options, some TV rights, and they get incredibly rich. Um, they're someone who looks just like one of their ancestors. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, one thing I would throw out there, I mean, we've talked about the horror and science fiction tropes, but if all you know Bong Joon-ho from is just Parasite, and if you haven't seen this, and if you haven't seen Snowpiercer, absolutely go see Snowpiercer for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I would say, like, check out all of his stuff. I've, I've liked... I've at least enjoyed everything he made except his first one I wasn't super into, which is like barking dogs don't bite. I wondered if it was just like an issue of translation, like it like it might have just made made more sense for people in Korea or just like you might have been connected to it more or something. Um, but I, I struggled with that one. And it's it's very different compared to a lot of his other movies. Uh, there's some similarities, I guess, in like how it focuses on people, but all the other ones I've uh, I've greatly enjoyed. Um, but if you've only seen Parasite, I would say like with this one and Okja and Snowpiercer, like he has a very I would say I have to say like Spielberg and Hitchcock flair. Even though he you know he didn't want to be Hitchcockian with a monster here, but the way he creates scenes of tension is pretty fantastic just like letting things build there's a moment in the sewer with this with the girl and the monster where she's trying to escape and the monster's like still awake and she thinks it's asleep and just the way that scene like builds and kind of like shifts and moves from idea to idea back and forth uh is fantastic and then we talked at length about the opening sequence where the monster is tearing everything apart and it's like super loud and roars and ripping at people and people are screaming and it's chaos. But then at the end of that sequence, it just becomes silence. He just drops out all screams, all roars, any background. It's like the Saving Private Ryan kind of moment when, you know, you're in the thick of battle and you just like it's all white noise. Um, it's just drowned out. And that's the moment when the father has like he trips he's been pulling the girl with him and he trips and then he like grabs a hand thinks it's her and he runs 10 steps or something and realizes oh this is a different little girl and so his daughter's still back on the grass and that's when the monster scoops her up but that whole scene that sequence within the larger sequence is incredibly tense and well done so that's something that uh Bong does uh, incredibly well, I think, in all of his movies. I mean, Chris, I know you and I talked about this with Snowpiercer. Um, I remember when we saw that, I think I've said this before, like, to some people. So if you haven't seen Snowpiercer, you know, they're on a train. Tr each train car is some different setup, and these doors open, and one room is, like, full of kids learning, and another room is, like... A restaurant and another room is like full of dudes with guns um, but I was like so on edge every time those doors opened because you just did not know what it was gonna be next like I mean obviously as the plot progressed you figured all right they're working to the end of the train they're gonna get to their Willy Wonka kind of you know Wizard of Oz man behind the curtain eventually here 
but each time they opened those doors, it was just something unexpected or what's this going to be. And so it just created like this utter tension every time they got from one train door to the next. And that's kind of the epitome, I think, of the stuff he does, but he does it expertly well here in The Host. And I mean, there's moments of that in Parasite as well. And I think uh, where I talk about this and Parasite having a lot in common in terms of like the family dynamic and the and the, and the and the morals of the story that are being told, I think this and Snowpiercer have a lot in common in terms of the amount of subtlety that each contain, which is not a lot. Um, and I just love that he's not afraid to just beat you over the head with what he wants to tell you. I think it works in his movies where it normally in a horror film, I'd be like, that's too much. Like when he's just like at the end of the film, they're releasing agent yellow onto like protesters. And it's like, so on the nose, but like, he's like kind of winking at you just enough to be like, yeah, it's on the nose, but here's what I'm trying. Like, I'm not going to beat around the bush about this. Like, this is the point I'm trying to make. Like, there's no subtlety. Same thing in Snowpiercer as they go from train car to train car. Like, there's no, like, subtle moral in any of the train cars. Like, each one is, like, going to punch you in the face with what it wants to teach you. And then you're going to move to the next. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's... He pulls off a lack of subtlety in a way that you don't see a lot of directors be able to pull off. I love the fact that he did this a monster movie in 2006 and then did such like a powerful movie with Parasite what was it was it 2000 2019 okay I think he even said something about how monster movies are typically like frowned upon or uh, shat on because they're monster flicks but like you can see elements of things he was he's going to do later in this that was like my big takeaway from watching it a second time was like oh clearly now i understand you know where he was going with snow not that i didn't understand snowpiercer but in hindsight i'm like oh yeah this makes a lot of sense like of course he's gonna go on to do snowpiercer yeah and he uh i i don't think i mentioned at the top but i mean not only did he direct this but he also wrote it and I, if I, unless I'm mistaken, I think he's written all of his films. I don't know if he's ever had like a co-writer on them. Snowpiercer is based on a French comic, but I did track down that comic before and it is vastly different other than the idea of like a train in like a post-global warming world, like, or, you know, I guess like global freezing world or whatever. Um where you know people are on it but the the way it's structured characters the whole like movement from train car to train car he basically just took the kind of basic idea and ran with it so yeah he's uh he's not only an incredibly impressive director he's an incredibly impressive writer and like i said i think he's written all of this stuff well some of the uh some of the things he was doing in the host were um like on the spot like I had read that the monster movements were done were figured out like uh, later on and it was just based on the environment like the monster would have to move a certain way because of the environment that it's in and I was like of course it's brilliant it's fantastic yeah the uh, I I saw so there's a bridge that uh, is over the Han River that we're where we see a lot based on where the family's like food cart is um and uh, the monster starts there and it's hanging upside down and people think it's like workers equipment or something. 
But yeah, the monster is hanging upside down by its tail, and then later we see that the monster can kind of flip itself and like move with its tail, almost like some kind of like monkey or lemur or something. It can grab onto stuff and flip and move. So yeah, uh, he did that, and then I also saw that the way they did the splash effects when the monster goes into the river at different points was they just drop big barrels, and then I think they just covered them up with the uh, the CGI of the monster, and so it definitely makes the splashes look uh, pretty legit and way better than if they had tried to done CGI water in 2006. That'd have been terrible. Um, yeah, that'd have been abysmal. But speaking of sort of on the nose um did you guys do you guys think that the agent orange thing at the end the release whatever pod looked like the monster Hmm. did you guys feel that way like that so we're talking about the monster hanging from underneath the bridge yeah and that that shape that it took i could see that i i didn't think of it that way but yeah i could see that being intentional I definitely noticed that those pods were a very weird shape, and I thought it was really cool, like the way that they were designed and worked. But I didn't. But that does make sense. I didn't like connect it to the monster design. But that's one reason. And that would why make sense too, so because the U.S. government is responsible for this monster, <laughs> and they are responsible for Agent Yellow. So he would be connecting oh. the two things thematically. And they're responsible for his uh, personal, or the main character's personal lobotomy. They're responsible for a lot. The virus hoax, the... Oh, no, I know, but I'm yeah. saying I'm saying connecting those two things visually is the kind of thing good directors do. Yeah. Oh. All right. Um, anything else uh, before we wrap up here? Uh, the only thing else I'd like to add that we didn't... I meant to touch on this in the very beginning was... Uh, I This was Quentin Tarantino one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies of the year. Uh, yeah, I think not just the year. I think he put it on like a, a top, top like, 10 of like, well, it was like he said of, of like, it was like a 15 or 20 year span or something. He, Man. Uh, yeah, like he put it, you know, I don't know. So it came out 2006. So I don't know if he put from like 1990 to 2006 or, you know, whatever it was. I saw he's, yeah, he was, he was very much uh, a big fan of this. That's a huge endorsement. Like I, you know, it, did really well it made all this money it was huge in and you know in its country but then one of the greatest living directors also enjoyed it mm-hmm. i did also see that it was such a success in south korea that they have since erected a statue to the yeah. monster in the hot by the han river so where this was all like shot and took place and that happened in 2015 so like nine years later it still has an impact culturally in South Korea. And I mean, you know, Bong Joon-ho has continued to make great films and he's like crossed over into making like American films that have, I mean, even before Parasite, um, you know, Snowpiercer uh, definitely grabbed a lot of attention. And then Okja, he got, you know, a movie on Netflix. So, uh, so yeah, so it it must be still uh, held up. It, you know, might be like South Korea's Jaws or something where they, uh, you know, they really think that this is this is their big horror film. So uh, I'll have to see if I can uh, track that down and find uh, what that uh, if, if they just made a, a big statue of the monster, I guess. I hope it's life sized. And that's my whole deal. Letting you know and uh, loathe me for this, that I'm not a huge horror movie fan. Um, but it's movies like this where I'm like willing to put horror movies in like my top movies of the year if they're doing something beyond 
Like, I, like I hate a slasher film. I hate something like that. It's just not for me. I don't like it. I don't have a fun time. But a movie that puts so much on top of or underneath the horror genre or both, that's where I like the genre can shine through in a way that a lot of other genres cannot because the stakes are so high. Uh, because mm-hmm. you can kind of be so... Because they're basically like a cartoon where you know, you've already suspended your disbelief to the point of monster. So like, what else can we do while we have you in this position? Uh, so sure. it's like... A movie like this that, like, gets me really into a genre that I usually, like, shy away from. Well, I will say, to just defend horror, there are many <laughs> better horror films out there, and horror should not be judged on slasher films as a genre, because, you know, there's some good slasher films, but most of them yeah, are total when, dog shit. When it's not a slasher film, it's Paranormal Activity, you know? I'm just going to throw out... Oh, I don't out, like Paranormal Activity I'm going to throw out the worst examples and ignore the good and medium <laughs> stuff to make my point. All right. Uh, so, we'll wrap up here. Would you recommend The Host? I would and have. Uh, when I worked at... I think I was working at Blockbuster when it came out on DVD, and I pimped the shit out of it, so definitely. Also, would. Don't have any bona fides to back it up, but (laughs) but I would. It's not a slasher film. Go watch it. (laughs) That's what Chris says. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I absolutely would. I I remember, I mean, Bong Joon-ho was not a big deal in the United States when this came out prior to the, when this came out, he had done memories of murder, which if you haven't seen is sort of like a South Korean, like procedural where cops are trying to figure out what happened in a case. And he kind of inverts the way detective stuff is done. It's not my favorite, but you know, it's, I I think he's better in mother, um, which we'll definitely do on the show at some point. That's a detective story, an interesting detective story. But he had done Memories of Murder at that point, and he had done um, the uh, other one I mentioned, uh, Barking Dogs Don't Bite, I think. Uh, yeah, so he had done that. But so he hadn't really, like, done anything that grabbed much attention outside of South Korea. I think, you know, some hardcore film people probably saw Memories of Murder. But the first I ever heard of him was from this, and it was basically just the concept of it. And then I think I saw the trailer and I was like, oh, this looks super cool. And so I saw it a year after it came out or whatever when it got on DVD. And I was all about it immediately. Um, so he's been someone I've been following since then. You know, I eventually tracked down Mother. I watched Oakja when it hit Netflix. And then Snowpiercer, I remember... Uh, Chris, when you know, we were in Columbus, like that was one that was had kind of been on my radar, and I just did not assume that it would like ever be in theaters. I figured like, oh, I'll have to watch it on DVD because it's it's just not going to be a big thing. And then it sort of became like a, a sleeper hit of the summer, and I was very pleased. I was like, yes. And so I, mean, uh, I walked into Snowpiercer having known I knew nothing about it. I think right, you told same. me that it was this director. And I knew that there was a train involved, and I walked into the theater, and I've never been more excited to not know yes. what I was walking into than I was that day. I was just like, "This was a literal wild ride." It was. It was one of my out. favorite theater experiences ever. I didn't know much. I knew it was like a post-apocalyptic thing. I knew it was people like stuck on a train. 
I knew it was science fiction and I knew it was the guy who did the host. So I was interested based on that. And then I would have seen that the cast included like Ed Harris and um, uh, what's his name? The William Hurt. Uh, well, no, John Hurt. Chris not, Evans. Not, oh, John Hurt. Yeah, yeah. John Hurt is Chris... much better than William Hurt. Um, My bad. But uh, Chris Evans wouldn't have like been like, ah, I got to go see that. But I mean, he's good. He's fine. But but John Hurt and uh, Ed Harris, I'd been like, oh, OK. But yeah, like uh, I remember it was like, Chris, you and I and a couple other people went, and I think we were all just like giddy throughout. Oh, uh, it had uh, Tilda Swinton's in it too, and so that would have been a big. Uh, oh, she's big, great. Oh, she's super every, good every time. So, uh, and in, in that movie, she's crazy. You know, they she like might put be, her that under might be that, her best. like nutty yeah. makeup and stuff. Chris, as as much as I gave horror shit just now, this is my second favorite movie theater experience of all time. My first being Cabin in the Woods because I yes. also walked into that one not knowing mm-hmm. anything about it, and I got to like. I th- did I go with you, Linton? I remember. No. The well, f- what happened? What happened was you you went, uh, and I I don't think I even knew about it surprisingly, or maybe I had heard rumblings, but I didn't know anything about it. You went, and then I was coming back for the summer, and you're like, "We got to go to this." Uh, we went, so you took me, and we went. You went again, yeah. like a a few weeks later or something. On well, that one, I remember just like going into it knowing it was expecting a slasher film. Uh, I get to like there's it's just like two businessmen talking and then that like <laughs> cabin in the woods like horror graphic just like jump scares you and I remember just like laughing so hard at the beginning of that movie and it's just getting better from there like yeah those are my two favorite theater experiences of all time both horror movies so yeah. we'll, we won't, we won't dig too far into that yeah I mean Snowpiercer yeah like all of his movies it's like I wouldn't say it's horror it's a lot of genres happening yeah. at once yeah but, it's more action than horror uh, unless you but, count bug mashing but bringing it back to my recommendation yeah so um when I first saw the host it was just based on like a lot of things I watch oh the premise sounds cool I might have seen a trailer but then I was just like all about it and I remember when I when that first monster attack happened, Jason mentioned this at the top of the show of like, oh, it's just in broad daylight. And I remember just being kind of like knocked on the floor from that. Like, holy shit, that they that never happens. Or if they try something like that, it never works. It doesn't look good. But I'd never seen then or I think since one that not only inverted that trope and did it so well, but did it like, it wasn't like, oh, you see the monster in broad daylight for 30 seconds it's a fucking like five to ten minute scene uh sequence where all this is happening so yeah i was just in basically immediately so yeah i've loved the host for ages and ages and uh it's been uh what brought me to bong joon ho and then he's someone that like i will continue to watch anything he puts out um you know like whether it's in the theater or if i track it down later after the fact so I'm certainly curious to see what he's got coming uh, following his Oscar win with Parasite. I did see he has some other things in mind with one of them being like, you know, at least somewhat horror centric, um, but we'll probably be mashing genres as he always does. So big recommendation for me, Chris. A quick spoiler alert, because you always do the where to watch, and this one had me tickled to death because I was like, <laughs> where can I watch this film? And the answer was, on any streaming service that has ever existed. 
Okay. On YouTube. It was on YouTube. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad you jumped in because I genuinely forgot to even look for that. I often forget to track it down. And this time I've been having c computer issues the last week. So it completely slipped my mind to look for it. But Chris is right. I don't even have to look this up. You can find the host, I'm sure, virtually anywhere. But if Chris looks like you're typing in and oh, yeah, I want to I want to find the list because it's yeah, it's long. But uh, but beyond the streaming, Chris is looking for that. It's obviously available on DVD. It, YouTube. Uh, it's uh, okay. So it's on YouTube. YouTube. That's that's where I watched it. Right. Again. Um, but did you like pay for it on YouTube or did somebody nope. upload it? Nope. Okay. I mean, it's no, it's it's you. You have to watch an ad every thirty gotcha. minutes. So I gotcha. watched like four ads. I yep. watched it on Roku TV. <laughs> or no, it was Hulu. Sorry, Hulu. I had choices. Okay. All right. Here's. Um, uh, go ahead. Oh, just that there are, uh, it's, it's been on DVD for years, and then it is on Blu-ray, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's on 4K. It's the kind of movie that would be put on there, but don't hold me to that, so uh, you'll have to investigate that yourself. Chris, where, uh, where can I find this? All right, here's the list that I have in front of me. You can watch it on Hulu, Hoopla, Fubo TV, Monsters and Nightmares via Prime Video, Warriors and Gangsters via Prime Video, Canopy, Pluto TV, Plex, Crackle, Tubi TV, Voodoo. You can also rent it on Prime, Microsoft, Google Play, YouTube, iTunes, and Voodoo. I had no idea that there was a Fubu TV. That's cool. Fubo TV. It's like a. It's a. It's a sports station. Usually, it shows soccer. Fubo. F U B O. Yeah. Oh, yeah. not it, Fubu. Not Fubu TV. Oh. Not for us by us TV. <laughs> yes. This is a soccer streaming platform that you can watch the host on. All right. So uh, many opportunities, many ways to uh, watch the host. I will note, you know, all of this is in Korean. So uh, other than the our, our American quote unquote hero moment and then uh, a couple moments with some like villainous doctor characters, they speak in American English. Everything else is in Korean. You, at least on like the Blu-ray and DVD, you can listen to it in dubbed English. I personally always hate that because uh, it's not like the real person giving the performance. Um, so you can also watch it in the original Korean and then watch it with subtitles. So just an FYI, you know, you have options on that. But uh, I think the subtitles are the better way to watch these films. All right. So that uh, wraps us up for the host. We are going to be back next time, and we are going to be looking at a particularly dark film for, from, as I understand it, no one on the panel has seen it. I've read enough about it to know an idea about it. This is something that's kind of been passed around the internet in the last year or so as kind of like a dare or challenge, particularly among teens. We're going to be looking at Megan is Missing. So uh, we're going to dive into that phenomenon and see what we make of it. Megan is missing, coming up next.